listening to sermons from South Point McDonough, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God, to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpoint.org. Psalm 90, it's uh, going to get a little bit dark, um, but it's, uh, we're going to come out of it, okay? So just know that, uh, know that going into it. So uh, thank you, Chris, for reading that a little bit earlier. We're going to dive right in in just a second. But if you want to turn in your Bible to Psalm chapter 90, starting with, uh, we're going to look at, just kind of walk our way right through it. Um, <clears throat> so the other day I was feeling like pretty, like, man, my life has got a lot of problems. Like, you know, things are, things are not going great right now. Like, my, uh, we have loved ones, relatives in the hospital, um, you know, car falling apart, uh, house falling apart, uh, everything breaking that could possibly break, um, you know, and you're just kind of like, oh, man, what could, be, what could be worse? And then this is this past Sunday, I'm looking, like, through my phone, and I see, like, there's a submarine missing, like at the bottom of the ocean floor, like looking for the Titanic. And I'm like, okay, so that, it, it's all about perspective. Like these, these, uh, these folks end up like literally dying at the bottom of the ocean in this submarine this past week. And so I was like thinking about, okay, well, so that's bad. Like let's, I could talk about that. Uh, so I was trying to look up a couple of days later and then I see like these people from Pakistan who were complaining about everybody being worried about the submarine because 250 Pakistanis were on a boat to Greece and, and it sank and nobody even tried to help save them. So they're like, I had seven relatives who, who died in this and nobody even tried to rescue them. And so it's like, it's perspective, but also it's just every day. It's just every day. The reality is that there's not really a day that goes by that we're not confronted by death and suffering. Whether it's in our own life, whether it's in the life of a loved one, whether it's on the news, it's an ever-present reality. So it's not so much like when are we going to experience this, but it's like how do I get through every day knowing the reality that my days are numbered, that my time here on earth is limited, that I will die, that the people that I love will die. Take a deep breath, all right? There's only a few responses you can be having right now. Squirming in our seats a little bit. Like, I don't like talking about this. I don't like thinking about this. I have people that I love who are confronted with this right now. Um, this is not a fun or easy kind of reality to face. But at the end of the day, it's the entire point of what this psalm is about. It's bringing us to this confrontation and then answering this question that has been plaguing and kind of troubling human beings from the very beginning of time. If you go all the way back to classic Greek philosophy, they really sort of, when they had a lot more time than we have to sit around and, and talk about the, you know, the meaning of life and, and why, we're, why we die and things like that, they kind of fused into two sort of answers for this. One of them is personified by the Stoics, the Stoics were kind of like, you know, yes, we're all going to die, so we need to just be strong and put it off as long as we can and look it dead in the eye and just accept that reality, and that's the way it's going to be. 
And then you had the Epicureans or the, the uh, hedonists, kind of the same, who were like, yes, we're all going to die, so we need to just have as much pleasure and have as much fun as we possibly can uh, every single day, as much as we possibly can, and because we're going to die and then it's going to be over with. And so really, throughout history, you kind of have different names for these two things, but this is people kind of waffle back and forth between these two extremes whenever they're sort of answering this question. And I think if we think about our own lives, a lot of times, even within our own lives, we kind of waffle back and forth between these two extremes. But Christianity and the gospel gives us a different answer, and that's what we're going to look at a little bit today. So what I want to see now is the, the context of this passage. So uh, you probably noticed that this is a unique psalm in the entire book in that uh, if we believe the Bible, which we do, uh, this would be like the oldest psalm, okay? So this is a psalm that's written by Moses, uh, probably at the time when they're wandering in, uh, in the wilderness, probably the time the people of Israel have come out of, uh, have come out of, uh, of, of captivity in Egypt, and they're wandering in the wilderness. In fact, for the, for the Jews, this was a psalm that was used at the Feast of the Tabernacles uh, to celebrate and memorialize this kind of time. And so that's going to be one of the through threads that really kind of runs through what I want to talk about today. So um, think about this in light of this Feast of the Tabernacles. So what, what was the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles is one of the three major feasts that Jewish people have still to this day. Um, it's mentioned multiple times in the scriptures. So it's not, so it was one that was just continually running. Um, it was not one that was ever kind of forsaken or forgotten. And it, it sounds like a lot of fun. Basically, it's kind of like a big camping trip for everybody. Um, everybody leaves their house. They all go and they kind of pretend like they're living in the wilderness again as a memorial to remember. And a tabernacle is like a tent. So they set up tents and they all camp out for a week. Um, the men all go to Jerusalem and they would just have a big camp out. Um, and so, so this is kind of what would happen to memorialize God rescuing the people and God being with the people. Okay, so hold this in our mind, uh, and then hold these kind of couple answers that, uh, that maybe the Stoics and the Hedonists would have to this big question. Because this big question that we're confronted with in this passage is, is how do we live with the fact that we live in a world of suffering that ends in death? How do we go on throughout our lives and live every single day to the glory of God with this kind of looming question over us? especially considering this kind of gulf, uh, this separation between human beings and God. Okay, so a couple of things there. So kind of keep some of this stuff in our mind as we're going. We're going to come back to it and hopefully tie up some of these threads towards the end. So, so uh, verse 1 and 2. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you were God. As you can imagine, Moses composing this idea of God as, as refuge, as dwelling place when they're wandering in the wilderness. Uh, it's not necessarily even a metaphor for them. It's, they don't have a home. They don't have a land. God is their rest. God is their home. For you and me as Christians, we're living in exile in this world until Christ returns. And so he is very much going to be as we're wandering in this wilderness of life where there's still suffering and pain and death, he is that refuge. He is eternal. He is good. And he is the only hope 
for people. Creation changes, the world changes, we change, but God does not change. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever formed, God was there everlasting to everlasting. And so we see here, we see God for who he is. This is our first thing. We're going to look at uh, seven points, you know, seven sub points on each one. You know, we're going to, it's not going to, we're going to be here for three or four hours. Don't worry about it. Um, just kidding. All right. So, so the first thing we see here is we see God for who God is. God is eternal. God is good. God is before all generations. He is the creator. He is the rest for his people. So what's, what's the problem? The problem is us. The problem is sin. The problem is separation in this chasm that comes between us and God because of sin. Verse three says, you return man to dust and say, return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it's past or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They're like a dream, like grass that's renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They're soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? Now, the famous Isaac Watts hymn, uh, O God, Our Help in Ages Past, is set on this first half of this passage that we've just, we've just looked at. And he called it in his notes, Man Frail, God eternal. His emphasis on this separation from God and our bleak condition is, is going to point and be linked directly. He uses chapter five to link it directly to the flood in his hymn. So he says in, in verse five, you sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream. Now think back to Noah. Think back to Noah and the flood. It's supposed to call their attention to everyone who's outside of the ark knocking to try to get in, swept away by this flood. What more bleak picture could there possibly be than this? That's how we're separated from God, by sin. That's where we're separated from our rest, separated from our refuge because of our sin. In verses five and six, we see this emphasis on uh, the grass that's renewed in the morning, it flourishes in the morning, and then it fades and withers. In the Middle East, there were this is the kind of grass that they would have a lot of times. I was uh, when I was kind of looking around at some things, I saw some pictures of this where it will kind of like you'll have a rain, some grass will spring up, but then the sun scorches it and it goes right away. And so this is a common metaphor. In fact, so much so that it was used eight times across the scriptures to describe the life of man. So this is not something that we, you know. I feel like I'm, you know, about to turn 40, and I'm like, oh, I'm getting, I'm getting old. Like, you know, all the time when I was in my you know, teens and 20s and stuff, it's like people talk about life being short, and I'm like, no, nah, life is long. But it goes so fast. And it's like it sneaks up on you, and we see it. It's all through Scripture. It's very plain. Everybody talks about it. Life is short. But for, we have some kind of defense mechanism in us that's like, no, 
I'm not going to think about it. Nope, I'm going to put it off. No, I have all the time in the world. But he says, no, think about the fact that you're here today and gone tomorrow. Think about the fact that life is short. In 1 Peter 24, is another one of these examples. It says, all flesh is like grass, and it's glory like the flowers of grass. The grass withers, and the flowers fall away. And so we see this again and again throughout Scripture, this idea that our lives are like grass that's here today and gone tomorrow. Verses 7 and 9, uh, verses 7 to 9, we see um, the frailty, that frailty isn't our worst problem. Frailty is not our worst problem. So, so these first six verses, we see that the human beings are not like God, that we are not eternal like God is eternal, that we are, are here and gone, that our lives are quick. Uh, and yet we see that that's not even our worst problem in verses seven through, seven through nine because our worst problem is our sin, that God sees our deepest, darkest secrets, that our hearts are laid bare before God. That everything that we've ever done, God sees it clearly. Our, our secret sins are laid bare before him. Uh, ironically, I remember uh, this uh, a live CD that Derek Webb did, a uh, Christian musician back in the day. And there was one of the things that he, he talked about on there was, um, was the best thing that could ever happen to you is if all of your sins you'd ever committed were just displayed on the five o'clock news and everybody saw them. And I can remember at the time just being like, that's like your worst nightmare. That's like my worst nightmare. Nobody wants something like that to happen. And, and yet that's exactly what's happening before God. Every single thing that we've ever done, every single thing about who we are, we're laid completely bare. All the ways that we try to disguise ourselves and put on a mask and put on a face and, and appear good and godly and holy to everyone else around us, he sees through every single bit of that and it's to him that we have to answer. This is our biggest problem. It's that yes, we're going to die and also we have to answer to a holy God. So our antidote to this problem of this this death, this short life, is that we can find rest in God. But the problem with that is, is that we can't find rest in God because his wrath is on us because of our sin. So we have a separation from God. So we have a major problem. We have a major problem. Because we cannot save ourselves. We cannot hide ourselves from God. We cannot avoid death as much as we try. As much as uh, medicine and plastic surgery and health and vitamins, uh, the millions and billions of dollars that are spent on all that every year to, to try to make our lives last forever, ultimately it's not going to happen. We can't avoid it. Verses not, verse, look at verse 9. He says, all our days pass away under your wrath and bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength, 80. These were long amounts of time for one of these Israelites who would have been hearing this. We look back at, you know, the, the early fathers of Israel and it's like, man, they lived almost a thousand years. But very quickly, soon after the flood, the lifespan has shrunk way down to where our lifespan today is longer. 70 or 80 years seems like that's about the right amount of time for us. But this was, he's saying, that's long. 70 years, that's good. 80 years, almost unheard of for them at this time. And so for them to be saying this, is like, that's a long life. That's a long 
time. But in the grand scheme of things, it's nothing. It's nothing. So we feel this overwhelming power, uh, this overwhelming anger at God towards sin, this overwhelming kind of anxiety about the fact that our lives are short and we can't do anything about it. And it brings us back again to those, those answers from like philosophy, like, well, what do I do? What do I do with this? What do I do with this reality? Well, we've come up with several different ways to, to, to deal with this. I was talking actually with, with Jason um, this past week about a guy named Neil Post who wrote a book, Amusing Ourselves to Death. You know, that's one of the things that we do. We just find ways to fill our lives with so much stuff that we don't have to think about it, okay? How many shows can I cram into my time? How many things can I listen to? How much stuff can I read? How can I make sure that the voice that says your life is short and what you do matters and we have a God to answer to, how can I quiet those voices out and make sure that I don't have to hear them so that I can get through the day? How can I numb myself with drink, with food, with things to watch, with things to do? How can I numb myself from having to think about this ever-pressing reality? Because if I think about it, I have to do something with it. There's been some bold attempts by people even recently to deal with it. Think of somebody like um, Camus, uh, who was a French philosopher and writer, and he, came, he was, was existentialist and then came up with absurdism because he said, basically, you know, if the, the reality of life is so absurd that all you can really do is just laugh at it. And the truth of the matter is, apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ, I think he's probably onto something. That's about as close as you can get if you don't understand the truth of the gospel of Jesus. Life is just a, a mean joke unless there is a loving God. Life is just a mean joke unless there is a loving God. So there's a couple questions that all these philosophies are trying to deal with, that all these philosophies are trying to answer. How do we account for a world that isn't how it's supposed to be? How do we, Everybody can look at the world and see that there's something broken. Everybody can look at the world and say, this isn't what we're created for. This isn't what we're made for. The evil, the hatred, the suffering, the death, the pain. This is not the way that it's supposed to be. This is not the way the world is supposed to be. So how do we deal with knowing this and living every single day? How do we cope with that? How do we deal with that? We've been doing this, um, we have this little, have this little, book chain, text chain that's kind of developed um, with some folks here in the church. We've been talking about a lot of different, a lot of different books, and, and so I was thinking about a lot of them this past week. And one of my favorite authors for a long time, Cormac McCarthy, uh, actually just passed away like, uh, less than, like less than two weeks ago. And so I was thinking about like why, because he's super dark and super bleak. Uh, and I was like, why, what is it that draws people to something like this? And the truth of the matter is, he's actually... He's actually really influenced by Gnosticism, which is like an ancient like Christian heresy. And so Gnosticism is like this great divide. Like every single thing in the world is so evil that there's no separ that there's a total separation between like the world and God. 
Uh, and so basically, it gets rid of the gospel, which is why it became a heresy, because they, didn't believe, they thought the world is so evil that Jesus couldn't even come into it. They're like, Jesus would have been stained, that God couldn't come into the world. So it was a total separation, that it was more like he was like a, like a hologram of himself when he came down here. It wasn't really him. Um, and so it was kind of a heresy. But, but because of this influence, he writes just incredibly dark bleak novels and one of them is called outer dark it's a reference to a passage in matthew where where jesus talks about throwing people out into the the outer dark where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth and the atmosphere and the way that he tries to set these things is is so bleak and so dark and it shows very clearly a world without hope a world without hope and again apart from the gospel of jesus apart from a God who's willing to come into that darkness, there is no hope. Which brings me back to this Feast of the Tabernacles. Okay, so, so we have this separation in Gnosticism where it's like God would never deign to come here. And yet what we have with the tabernacle is a God who comes and pitches his tent amongst us. A God who sees the depravity of the world and yet enters into the darkness, enters into the suffering, enters into the pain, and pitches his tent amongst us. Go back to the, to the exile. Go back, or go, or not the exile. Go back to you know, the wandering in the wilderness with Moses, with the time he's writing this psalm. And think about this pillar of fire, this the presence of God guiding the people of Israel through the night. And think about, this tabernacle, this, this visible presence and this cloud, this, this visible presence of God with the people each and every day, that God would come and be with this people in their wandering, that God would come and be with them in the wilderness. And that points forward to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're gonna see, in fact, we can just look there right now in John chapter one. And this is the exact same tabernacle language in John chapter 1. He says in, in, in John chapter 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then down in verse 14, and the word of God became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. We see the opposite of that Gnostic idea that we're separated from God because we see a God who stoops to come to us and pitch his tent with us and dwell with us and show us his glory and show us the light of the goodness of the gospel. So we're gonna have a little bit of a turn here and, and, and start to dig ourselves out of this hole in, in uh, verse 14. <clears throat> if you look down at verse 14, you see, satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all of our days. So 
We haven't left this wilderness wandering. We haven't left this suffering. We haven't left this world of pain. And yet he says, satisfy us with what? Satisfy us by taking us out of the world. Satisfy us by removing the pain and darkness. No, satisfy us with your love. Is he being mean by only offering his love? No, because that's what we need in the deepest longings of our heart. In the deepest broken places inside of us, what we need is the love of God, connection with God. We need a a bridge that will bridge this gap between us and God in a fallen and broken world. So he says, satisfy us with your love. I think about, we said, uh, we said there were these different philosophies from early on. There was Stoicism and Hedonism. And, and we said that Christianity gives a different way. And I think about one of the things that John Piper does. You know, his entire philosophy is called Christian Hedonism. Because he says, for the Christian, we, we should pursue all the pleasure we can possibly pursue. But the Christian knows that all of our pleasure is in God. And so we pursue all of our joy and delight and pleasure in God and in the gospel. So he says that God is most glorified in us when we're most satisfied in him. And he says, by turning around one of the great formulas of the Westminster uh, Catechism, the chief end of man is to enjoy God and glorify him forever. Because he says we can't glorify him unless we enjoy him unless we love him, unless we take delight in him. And so first and foremost, our joy, our delight, our satisfaction is in God and in the gospel. That's what we need in the darkest moments of our soul. That's what we need in the midst of our suffering. It's not that we don't need other things too. It's not that we don't want other things too. But what we need is the love of God meeting us in the midst of that darkness in the midst of that dark place. And we need his help to cling to that love because the truth is, as human beings, a lot of times we're not strong enough. He says in, in verse 15, make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. I read what he said in the King James Version for this one. He says, make us glad according to the days you've afflicted us. Think about that for a second. Make us glad according to the days that you have afflicted us and the years wherein we see evil. He's holding two things that seem contradictory together there. He's saying, we're going to walk in days that are evil and days where we face affliction and days that we face suffering, and yet we can be glad. We think that there's, there's a contradiction there. I mean, there's no way, if, if our physical, if we're struggling physically, if we're struggling spiritually, if we're struggling emotionally, that we can't be glad in the midst of that. But he says, no, let us have a measure of gladness with the measure of pain. Let us have a measure of gladness with the measure of darkness and suffering that we face in our lives. He doesn't, he doesn't necessarily take it away, but he's with us in it. He's making our hearts glad in the midst of it. And the good news of the gospel is that ultimately, this is just a wandering. That yes, our lives are but, a gra- but like grass, but that's our lives here and now on this earth. 
That's not eternity. So we're looking at Old Testament. We don't have this really well-developed theology of af- the afterlife yet. But we see through the gospel of Jesus Christ that there, it's not just here today, gone tomorrow. Our lives here in this earth are but a breath and but a moment. But our lives are eternal with God. So we have hope beyond this day. We have hope <clears throat> beyond the withering and fading of the grass. We have hope beyond all of this. I think I've like totally not been following like any of the points. So sorry about that. <clears throat> Who knows what point I'm on? I have no idea. I think I bounced around several times. I think I already did seven, and I think I skipped like four. So uh, anyway, we're just gonna do the best we can. All right. So um, yeah, that's probably better. <clears throat> so. But at the end of the day, what this, this, this passage in, in verse 15 is saying is, is like we, we see in verse 14, find your satisfaction in God. And in verse 15, we see he's the one who makes us glad in him. So this is something that is given to us as a gift by the Spirit of God. So if we're Christians, we can depend on his Spirit to help to give us this gladness in the midst of this darkness. We say, but I don't have it. I don't have it. We have to seek it in him. It's a gift that he gives us. It's a grace and a mercy that he gives us in our life. And there's, there's actual ways that he gives it to us. One of the ways he gives it to us is through our brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, we, we need to, to, one of the reasons we push being, being connected to one another is because when we're going through difficulty and suffering and darkness, one of the major ways that God speaks to us is through our brothers and sisters in Christ, through how they serve us, through how they love us, through how they speak to us, through how we encourage one another. So as much as we can, in, in as difficult it is in, in a fast, busy world, to live life with one another, to encourage one another so that God can speak through us and help build us up in this love and joy in Christ in the midst of this darkness. And then we see in, in 16 and 17, last couple of verses here, let your works be shown to your servants and your glorious powers to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. And so we see that it's God who establishes this work. It's not us. We're not able to do this for ourselves and yet he has a job for us to do. Even in the midst of this crazy, messed up, difficult world, he has work for us to do. He has a job for us to do. He has a purpose for us here in the midst of it. God is working. We just have to learn how to see him and see what he's doing. He's at work in the world, and he has work for us to do in the time that we have. And what a blessing it is and a blessing it can be for us in the midst of it. So, yes, in a world that is crumbling all around us, in a world where we turn on the news and see sadness and darkness and pain and suffering, in a world where we struggle, a world where we're not, you know, like I don't, I don't have the gifting to do these certain things. I don't have the strength. He takes delight in taking our weakness and making it strength, in making something beautiful out of our mess that we find ourselves in. And so to go through just several of the things and make sure that I kind of hit on a couple of them. So, so the key ideas from, from this passage that we looked at today is first of all, we want to see God for who he is. We want to see God 
for who he is. We see in the, those first couple of verses that God is, that God is eternal, that he's good, that he is our refuge. The second thing we want to see is we want to see the world and our, our circumstances for what they really are. So we want to take an honest look. He says, teach us to know the number of our days. Teach us to know the number of our days. You know, when I was, uh, we were just in St. Augustine on vacation recently, and my family goes down there to St. Augustine all the time. And if you've ever been down there, some of you may have, you, there's like this little old historic district downtown, uh, but outside the gates, uh, so when it was founded, it was like a Catholic colony, uh, Spanish Catholic colony. And so outside of the gates, there's what's called the Huguenot graveyard. And the Huguenots were like the French Protestants or, who would lived there, but they couldn't be buried within the city limits. They couldn't be buried in holy ground. So they were buried in this graveyard outside. And so to go, every time we go there, it's like right next to the parking deck. I like to, I have to walk by and take the kids and my wife and be like, hey, this is the Huguenots. You remember who the Huguenots were? They were buried. This is where they're buried. And so take them, show them all the like nice nerdy historical stuff. But, but really it just, I feel a connection with them because I'm like, these are people who believed in the gospel and who you know, lived a life, and, and this is in the 15 and 1600s, and now they're, they're just buried here in the middle of a parking lot, you know, um, with, you know, anyway. Uh, but it's like, I, to see that. And then I was also uh, thinking about, I was over in, in Scotland, and they, they have, uh, a, a, like, Greyfriars in Scotland was, is this famous, uh, kind of used to be a cathedral, and then it was like a Presbyterian church. And the, the graves there are all over the entire churchyard. So they're so crammed in there that like you can't even walk into the church without just walking through the graves. And it looks like, you know, a haunted mansion. But we're talking about, you know, people buried there from like a th- over a thousand years ago. So, so much so that the gravestones are completely worn bare and you can't even see who it is that's buried there. Um, and then even just a couple of weeks ago, I was... Uh, visiting the church that my family and I were at when we were living in LJ. And it's, uh, it's actually my great-grandpa was the pastor of that church back in the day. And um, he's buried there. And my granddad's buried there. And my great-grandmother's buried there. There's this giant tombstone. And I used to drive by it on my way to school all the time. And it says land on it. So it's like all the time I'm driving by like a tombstone with my name on it, you know. Um, and, and there's something about, the reason I'm talking about this is because I always think about graveyards when I think about this counting the number of our days. You know, this is, all the people who lived in there lived lives with, with dreams and hopes. And they had aspirations and there were times when they were bored and there were times they had conversations where they, they wished they could get back and, and, and have a do-over on. And there were mistakes that they made and hopes that they had. And now they're buried in the ground. Dark, yes. But it's also this reminder for us to make the most of every single day that we have. As Christians, it's a couple things for us. It's not that dark in one sense if we truly believe the gospel because Christ is going to return and there will be this separation from our loved ones for a while, which is sad. Uh, So there is a little, you know, there's a sadness. I'm not saying just put a fake face on and pretend like you don't sad when somebody dies. No, but we truly believe the gospel. We know that we live for eternity and we'll see the people we love again. We'll be united with them again, that Christ returns and we raise from the dead. And so it's just a short and passing time. But it's also a reminder to us to live every day with that knowledge of the fact that we're not promised tomorrow. None of us are. It doesn't matter what our health is like. It doesn't matter. None of us are promised 
another day, another breath. Our breathing and our heartbeat is held in his hand. And so it's a challenge for us to live every day to, to find true joy and satisfaction, not in pleasure like a hedonist, but in pleasure like a Christian hedonist in God and who he is. Huh? It's to not be like a stoic and just say like, oh, I'm just gonna look death in the face and I'm tough so I can deal with it and, and still be dead. Uh, but find this hope in God that carries us beyond the grave. Find this hope in God that is eternal and truly joy-filling here and now. So we see the world and our circumstances for what they really are. And then we also, uh, we see ourselves as we really are. So we don't just know that we're in this transient kind of world. We also know that we have a sin problem that needs to be fixed. And the only way to fix it is through the gospel of Jesus Christ, through his sacrifice on the cross of taking our sin upon himself, dying, facing that separation from God so that we don't have to. All right? And then fourth, we cling to his mercy. Cling to his mercy like a light in the darkness. Um, and I could go on a couple different, couple different book rants there, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to spare you. Um, just know that like, it's an every single day decision to wake up and cling to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's something we cannot do on our own. It's a gift from God. The Holy Spirit gives us a, a longing and a desire to pursue him. But he gives us this ability to cling to that hope every single day. And he gives us means to bring that about in our lives. He gives us the word of God for us to study. He gives us prayer for us to hear. He gives us the spirit of God, which conforms us into the image of his son. He gives our brothers and sisters in Christ in the church to speak truth to us and into our lives. So we cling to his mercy in those practical and real ways. We find satisfaction in God and his love alone. Sixth thing, we, we depend on his spirit to make us glad. Depend on his spirit to make us because we can't do it on our own. And finally, we see God's work and do the work that he gives us to do. See God's work and do the work that he gives us to do. This, uh, this is a, a challenging psalm for us. We, uh, it brings me back to that tabernacle feast. And there was actually, uh, when Jesus was alive, there was, uh, uh, towards the end of his life, when he was there in Jerusalem, and he was celebrating this uh, feast of tabernacles. And it's actually um, the time where he, he told him that he was the water of life and he was the light of the world. And the light of the world thing is so cool because in the feast of the tabernacles, what they would do is, is they, would, uh, they would come to the temple and all the men would light torches at night and they would walk around the outside of the temple and it would be this light that would shine in the darkness. And it's in this context that Jesus says, I am the light of the world. So he is the light for us. We may be in a world of darkness, maybe we're in a world of pain, and yet he is a light for us. We cling to that light, the light of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. He is hope for us. He is a refuge for us. He is eternal when we are not. When our lives fade, we have eternity to look forward to with him in Christ. He is our hope in life and death. He is our joy and our salvation. Each week at South Point, we uh, take part in a, a, a remembrance meal. It's only by the, the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross that we're able to have that 
gap bridged. He came into the world and suffered and died on the cross. He didn't stay separated from us. He didn't stay untainted or unstained from our suffering. He knows what our suffering is like because he suffered himself. We remember that each and every week here at South Point by participating in this family meal. I'd like to invite you in just a moment, if you're a believer, to, to come to one of these stations that we have around the room and to, to take this piece of bread and dip it in the juice as a physical reminder of what Jesus has done for us spiritually and breaking his body, the body of Christ broken for us and this juice is the blood of Christ poured out for us. What I'm gonna do is, is pray and then we're gonna have a time where we can come to these stations. Father God, thank you so much for each and every person who's here today, Lord. Thank you for uh, your word that challenges us and convicts us, God. Thank you for... Um, Thank you for the, the knowledge that we will die. And it seems like a terrible thing to be thankful for. And yet it can make us live lives that count. And so Lord, I, help, I pray that you would help us to number our days, to live lives of radical pursuit of joy in you and live lives of purpose leading others to find that joy in you. And give us hope. Or I know there's some people in this place who struggle because they're at a, a closer brush with this kind of thing than others. But I pray that you would speak to their hearts and let them know that, that you are with them, that you are their light in the darkness. Lord, I pray for those who have loved ones who are or maybe facing death or maybe recently die. I pray that you would help them to know that this is not the end, that we have hope beyond the grave in the gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray that you would give our people strength and peace in their suffering, all through Jesus, for his name and for his glory. And Lord, help us to live each and every day for you and in love for you. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.